we all know and love him. Our host, Dominic Carter, has moderated debates with Hillary Clinton, billionaire Michael Bloomberg, and even interviewed Nelson Mandela. Here is our host, political commentator, Dominic Carter. Good day. A candid conversation on race in America and other topics with the prominent African-American Dr. Darren Portia. Entertainer Ice Cube is taking some heat for working with the Trump administration on his plan for Black America. Here's Ice Cube in his own words. Let's go. What do we get in the first 100 days? That's what we're trying to figure out. What do we actually get that we that they could give us overnight like that? And then there's half 42% of black businesses closing. None of that money. Where's the, where's our fucking bailout? Where's the bailout? Not the PPP loan that they that they didn't give us. Where's the bailout? I don't want to hear about deficit. Democrats don't seem like they got a plan. Republicans don't seem like they got a plan for us. And joining us right now, Dr. Darren Portia, thank you for taking time to be with us. As always, it's a pleasure. Uh, I, Dominic, you're someone I have an immense respect for, and I'm fortunate to be sitting directly across from you so we can speak to some real issues in connection with what's plaguing our society. Real issues. I'm glad that you said that. Now, generally for my career, 30-year career in journalism, race is a topic that I didn't enjoy discussing as a prominent black man on television. I always felt like I was in a no win situation. If I said X crowd, Y disagree. If I said Y crowd X disagree, it was a no win. But today I'm gladly doing it, discussing race with you because you're someone that I have enormous respect for. We're two Bronx guys. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. I got a lot of respect for you, too. And you earned your PhD. And we all know earning a PhD is not easy. You earned it from, I believe, Fordham University? Yes, sir. Okay. Ice Cube, the highly successful Ice Cube, rapper turned actor, numerous movies. He's been outspoken, as you know, about racial injustice and white supremacy throughout his career. But now some activists are accusing Ice Cube of working with the, quote, dark side because his contract with America, Black America, a 13-part plan, the Trump administration spoke to him and incorporated some of it. Now, what's your general reaction before we get into specifics of Ice Cube working with the Trump administration? Well, I understand it from the perspective of he presented an agenda to the Democrats and the Trump administration. He did. The Democrats felt as if this was something they want to revisit after the election. However, the Trump administration was willing to execute on a strategy immediately. So as a result of one component, meaning the Republican sect, willing to address the situation, or I should say welcoming what Ice Cube was looking to introduce, he therefore moved forward and executed on what he felt was best based on his business agenda. Now, 
Ice Cube in no way, shape, or form is a person that you can deny his blackness, so to speak, or Thank his you. cultural perspective. So Thank you. no one in any way, shape, or form can ever speak to, look, he is folding like a chair to the sentiment of just getting a check. Let's be honest. He was he, he's not Tommy. That's no, the term not, that, not that's even the close. Term not even that close. Critics would, would throw at people like you, me, or him. Absolutely. He's mainly what he's looking to do is he's working on a project that needs to be done now and in no way shape or form is this being devalued because the trump administration is green lighting the project and it's just so unfortunate because i'm speaking as an african-american male that many times we get siloed into different positions whereas it, it it creates somewhat of an inability for us to have lateral movement if i move to the left I will have issues with people to the far left. If I move to the right, then I'll have the, the same situation. So it goes back to you. It's undeniable in his success and the platform that he stood for moving forward. He has a phenomenal three on three basketball league. That's right. Um, that is prospering. Employing all of those former NBA players, predominantly African-American that are now out of work. That had no other economic incentive to move forward. Outside of bouncing a basketball, they just weren't doing anything. And when we look at the um, the meteoric rise in athletes that, upon retirement, go into bankruptcy, this was a silver bullet to lead them to a level of credibility from a socioeconomic perspective. But we look at him being a director. He's done some phenomenal work, such as Barbershop. There's been a multitude or a large body of work that he's presented that's made him a successful person. And it goes back to, if you look at who has been employed as a result of his works, it's been the African-American community and by large. The thing with the Trump administration, you can call it what you may. One of the things that I saw recently was the United Negro College Fund was going through a situation, a deficit, so to speak. And they they visited the Trump administration for some cash, so to speak, some grants. Traditionally, what's happened in the past was the historically black colleges, the HBCUs, would visit with whoever the president was in office, and they gave them a stipend that lasted them for a year. They would have to revisit it the following year, et cetera. Trump immediately gave them a large piece of cash that lasted them for a decade. It was no longer come in and revisit us one year, come back the next year, the same holds true. You look at the Trump administration and you can call it what you will, but, and I don't know him personally, but when you look at the body of work that's been produced over the course of years, whether it's him managing or being a, a component in the management of Mike Tyson or the USFL, different um, arenas of business here in the New York City area, it's something that has focused on moving the goalposts forward and not moving it back. Now, there are a lot of things that I have an issue with in connection with the Trump administration, but I've never seen a, a politician that has been seated as an incumbent where I was okay with any and everything that they did. You have to pick and choose for what works best for you. And it goes back to what Ice Cube's position in gaining um, an acceptance or a partnership with the Trump administration is something that was a good fit for Ice Cube. Ultimately, Ice Cube is hiring African-Americans, Latinos, and minorities to incorporate them into his business structure. So that being said, I'm 
totally okay with it. And those same people that are taking shots at Ice Cube are those same people that were not willing to hire him when the situation was presented to them. Dr. Portia, Ice Cube, as you just laid out the full argument of what it is, because it really is about empowerment. And so Ice Cube defended his stance, saying that he will, quote, advise anyone on the planet who has the power to help Black Americans close the enormous wealth gap. The press secretary for President Trump, Katrina Pearson, tweeted uh, in reference to Ice Cube about Trump's, uh, it's called Platinum Plan. She said, quote, leaders going to lead, haters going to hate. Thank you for leading. Now, Ice Cube went on to say, and it's important that I point this out as we are discussing race in America here. Every side, I'm quoting Ice Cube, every side is the dark side for us, referencing African-Americans here in America. They've all done the same until something changes for us. They all lie and they all cheat, referring to Democrats, Republicans, and independents, I guess. But we can't afford to not negotiate with whoever is in power or our condition in this country will never change. Our justice is bipartisan. Now, that sounds perfectly logical to me. Is it logical to you? It is. When we look at our um, overall alignment with the Democratic Party, we haven't really seen a substantive gain. We need to, as African-Americans... Put up, position ourselves in a place whereas we are courted. When I say we are courted, meaning not just for our votes, because I can't tell you for years on end, my parents were Democrats and they voted for democratic policies, but in no way, shape, or form were they a recipient of change for the better. We go back to the um, 1994 crime bill that was enacted by President Clinton that incarcerated more African Americans than any other point in time. I'm not telling you that you need to be diametrically opposed to the Democratic Party or the Republican Party for that matter, but understand that the pendulum should be on both sides and you need to select on what best fits, on what best suits the socioeconomic empowerment that we have been striving for for years on end. We've been promised a lot and given a lot of nothing. So when I look at Ice Cube's ability to sit down and assess the Trump's the the the, um, the Trump administration's willingness to negotiate or come to a plausible um, understanding of this is something that we're willing to do. I was happy to see that, especially after Ice Cube received the statement from the Democratic Party was, look, we'll deal with this after the election. We've been dealing with a lot of things after the election. The incumbency comes into play. And then once again, we're still put on the back burner. And after the election, you and I both know, again, two African-Americans from the Bronx, the boogie down Bronx. BX. We know what after the election means. It's not after the election. You know, I don't need you anymore. When I'm courting your votership, I I totally wholeheartedly need you. And then I go back to something years ago. I saw you when when Nelson Mandela was alive. You did an interview with Nelson Mandela and Nelson Mandela was a person that a lot of people said, wow, how can you 
take aid from Fidel Castro in the wake. It, it was Fidel Contra, Castro and Muammar Gaddafi. How would you be willing to accept aid? And um, Nelson Mandela sp- specifically stated, nobody else was giving me anything. I need to go to a source that's willing to support my cause. So if I strike people off the list and these people are not willing to help me, but when I turn to, to, to nations such as the United States of America or Great Britain, for example, and they're not providing me the necessary entities to assist in the plight of my people, I have to go with what works for me. And so I really commend you on that um, that interview with, Mel- with Nelson Mandela Thank years you. ago. Thank you. And, you know, you had another interview with Mike Bloomberg, for mm-hmm. example, and that the interview with Mike Bloomberg was really resonating with me in that how his philanthropy was willing to bifurcate in different directions. It wasn't monolithic on the point of, look, I'm only going to deal with this population and this population alone. No, it was far more universal than that. And as a result, it made him more influential and a, a significant presence in politics and I really commend the fact that you were able to extract that information in an interview and get it to the masses. And now I know about it. So when you speak to what's happening with Ice Cube, I see it as no different. I see this as a person that is a, a representative of the African-American community that's trying to do what's best in the plight of the African-American community. That doesn't mean that Ice Cube is the saver. In no way, shape, or form should you look to Ice Cube as being the saver, but just understand that this is per- this is a person that's looking to advance an agenda that subsequently hires African-Americans and Latinos that we don't see in a lot of facets of Hollywood. And I would like to say this, Dr. Portia, Darren Portia, in defense of Ice Cube. Ice Cube is independently wealthy. He does not self-made need these, millionaire. Right. He doesn't need these headaches. Absolutely. He is looking out for his community. Absolutely. He does, however, have African American children. And so these are children that have to interact with law enforcement and so on. And all the other social economic issues as it relates to communities of color. In the midst of this controversy, prominent some prominent African-American thinkers and activists have spoken out against Ice Cube, arguing that President Trump has never done anything to address racism or eradicate racial inequity and is using Ice Cube, the entertainer, for his own image. You know, I, I I totally disagree with that. Um, when you look at the people that are employed by Ice Cube and when you look at the production that he puts out, whether movies like Barbershop, et cetera, these are movies or productions that are a reflection of the African-American community. So you may look to it from the perspective of, He's totally focused on himself, which is completely false because there's a a tremendous tapestry of people that are a part of the industry that he represents. When I say the industry that he represents, I don't know what the production company that he stands for. I don't know what their title does, but it goes back to the three on three basketball. The, the, the production and the direction, a lot of these films and the philanthropy that happens. This is something that is far more universal than just that one person. We are talking with Dr. Darren Portia, who earned his Ph.D. from Fordham University in the Bronx. Here we are, Dr. Portia, as I said earlier, 
We're sitting here together, two African-American men from this community, and we both have fond memories of Fordham University, et cetera. I didn't attend Fordham. I went upstate New York to uh, SUNY Cortland and then went to grad school at Syracuse University. But I'm familiar with Fordham because Fordham University was in the background from the community where I grew up at, at 184th Street and Webster Avenue. And Fordham University would often have summer camps and the Jesuits, priests would come to the community. And for poor kids like me, that had absolutely nothing, uh, you know, government cheese and so on. (laughs) They would, yeah, I still remember those days. They would invite us to summer programs, of course, because they knew we couldn't afford it, uh, free of charge at Fordham University. I will never forget that. It's part of my foundation. I will always remember Fordham University because I graduated from Theodore Roosevelt High School. In the Bronx, New York, right across the street right. from the Rose Hill campus. Rose Hill, right? Yes, yes. Rose Hill is in the Bronx. Right, in the Bronx. Which is directly of, of, across the street. Directly across the street. Right. So I say all of that to say that, I mean, you have enormous educational credentials. You are a national speaker. You uh, uh, recently did an event uh, in Idaho. Uh, you have traveled the world. And so I say all of that to raise this umbrella point. When I say race in America, race in America, what comes to your heart? What comes to your mind? Race in America is very interesting. I think it's it's multifaceted and it's geographical within the United States. We have 327 million people that live in the United States. However, you have a dynamic that changes from state to state. Um, and I give you an example. Michael Jackson, when he was alive, you know, he spoke to how he saw race in America, which was very different from when he was a teenager in comparison to when he was an older adult. And this goes back to an interview. I actually heard you interview Michael Jackson years ago, and he spoke to the dynamic of racism and how it impacts people on a geographical level. The cities, when I say those, the cities, meaning the largest cities such as Chicago, New York City, Houston, Miami, there's a very different plight of racism or racial um, interactions or relationships in those places in comparison to a place like one of the backwater towns in Mississippi. Um, Very different dynamic. And it goes back to, we look at where Martin Luther King stood in connection with race relations in America in comparison to Elijah Muhammad, who was the founder of the Nation of Islam. Whether you like it or not, these were people that were deemed as leaders of the African-American community years ago. But they had a very, they had a diametrically different messaging. And just before Malcolm X passed, he spoke to the the plights of Back then, we referred to as the Negroes, so to speak, but we I, we use I'll use the term African Americans. It's very different from a socioeconomic perspective and a social perspective. Social economic, that's of course that's you making money, you being seated in a position uh, that can allow you to acquire um, the money that's necessary for you to to survive. On a social level, the social level of African Americans is very important because. You having the right social connections can put you in a position of power, so to speak, a position of power and a position of influence. 
We see very few of those positions that have come to fruition for the African-American community. And there should be far more when we look at Fortune 500 companies and things to that effect. But we see a greater plight in, um, I want to say, the civil service employment. Civil service, you have a lot more African-Americans or, you know, minorities that are requiring positions in these um in these types of organizations, but that's somewhat limited. That social piece is key because now we want to be in a position where we can go from being the CEO of Citigroup and then go to um, JP Morgan Chase, things to that effect. And that is not, that social piece is something that's not really happening the way it should. And so it goes back to the plight in these larger cities is different than the plight in these smaller cities in the Midwest and the South. Um, I've, I've spoken to many um, African-Americans in places in the South that felt as if they were comfortable in a position where they were making $30,000 a year and nobody bothered them and their routine wasn't disrupted. But then you speak to an African-American that lives in a place like New York City and that same African-American can make um, $200,000 a year and say to themselves, look, I'm in a rut. I can do far better. And this can be someone that's highly educated, highly skilled, but the glass ceiling is keeping them keeping them back. So 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 to a degree, is it in the eyes of the beholder? And I guess I'm asking you directly, in your opinion, is there a race problem in America? There is a race problem in America, and we haven't effectively pro- pro- provided a solution or applied a solution. We had an African-American president um, four years ago, and there were, there were a lot of hopes of mending the fences and putting African-Americans in a different position. There were no changes there. Um, it, it's been one of these things, where, and I'm just speaking from an individual or a monolithic perspective, I feel that my rise in society is not what it should be, considering that I have a doctorate degree. Um, I worked in the NYPD for 20 years. I was an officer in the military. But at the same token, I feel like I'm in a mid-level position, whereas I think that I should be in a far more affluent position. Now, you have other people that will disagree with that narrative. But when we look at it from a quantitative perspective, the quantitative statistics clearly show that the African-American experience has not had the rise of the Caucasian experience with far less experience. Now, in no way, shape or form am I race baiting and am I saying that, look, the deck is stacked against me, but just based on the statistics we haven't had the meteoric rise that we should. And I give you an example. An African-American person loses a job for, let's say, whatever the case may be. Let's say it's a social indiscretion. That individual is going to be far less um, able to regain a position of power in comparison to if it was a Caucasian person that was caught in the same dynamic. Okay, look, no harm, no foul. We'll put you in a a penalty box for three years, and then you can rise in a couple of years. And a lot of that is based on the social piece. When I say the social piece, who you know? Who has the ability to pull you back up? Racism is... It's not the old school era of calling you the N-word and tying you to a stake 
and hanging you and whipping you based on looking at a white person the wrong way. Things are more surreptitious now than they were in the past. But I just think that us as a society, there are many things that we could do better that we're not doing better. And one of the keys to this is having this conversation on race. And that conversation on race doesn't mean I scream at you and say, because you're white, you're the enemy. That's not the way we have the discourse. It's merely availing people, look, this, these are the opportunities that we have missed as an African-American community, and we just want a shot. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you're bowing or you're folding like a chair and you're just willing to accept anything, but it should be a plausible discourse between people that are of the African-American community and people that are in a Caucasian community of affluence so we can have that information exchange in a way that's sound. And we need to revisit this. It's not like, okay, we have one of these panels, these one of these blue ribbon panels um, in January, and we say, yeah, we're going to change uh, rate. We, we, we're going to change race relations, and we we propose a ten point plan, and then it never happens again. We need to revisit this. There needs to be a sustainment piece attached to us. So let's say hypothetically, we have the conversation with this panel in January. Let's revisit it in June. Has there been any upward mobility in connection with the African Americans in the entertainment industry? Whenever I turn the television on, I don't see as many people that I like to see that look the way that I do. When we look at um, the economic perspective, so a person that's at the head of J.P. Morgan Chase, Citigroup, I'm just not seeing a lot of people that look very similar to myself. And I think that I'm a very qualified person to do a lot of things, but society has not been presenting those opportunities. And it goes back to the social piece of who are you connected with? And you can clearly see that the deck is stacked against you as a minority. But at the same token, I think the more plausible strategy is for us to have an ongoing, continuous discourse, not just the blue ribbon panel that meets once, and that's the end of it. Dr. Portia, I'm running out of time and I'm wrapping up here. I would be remiss if I didn't put this out there. When we discuss race in America, what role do we play as African Americans? One of the things is, as an African American, when you climb the ladder up, when you when you climb the ladder of success, success, and you get to that roof, don't pull the ladder up with you and say, "Well, I'm here, and nobody else should be here, and I should be the only one." You know, there's an each one teach one strategy in that you need to extend your arm to your fellow man. I'm a firm per, I'm a firm proponent of competency plays a germane role in this, but I'm also a firm proponent in people can be taught certain roles in society. So if a person may not be as competent, if you can come in from a perspective of mentorship as an African-American, I think that's what we need to do more of. And unfortunately, our our culture as African-Americans has been the recipient of a miscarriage of not helping our fellow man. Man, it has been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much, Dr. Darren Portia. Thank you. Well, I mean, it's mo- it, the it, it's an honor for me. You're a person that's interviewed Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton, Nelson Mandela, Michael Jackson, Michael Bloomberg, the list goes on. And so I'm just very humbled to have the ability to sit down across from you and engage in a discourse of this nature, because this is a substantive point that is impacting on our society. Join us next time for Conversations with Dominic Carter. 
reach out to Dominic on Twitter at Dominic TV Radio. Dominic looks forward to hearing from you. Thank you for joining us.